Hi, I'm Dove Fox. You're listening to the Audible Original Podcast, Donor 9623, Part 1, where I uncover a world of betrayal in the biggest reproductive hoax of our time. Shocking details emerge in my quest for the truth, and it doesn't stop here. An all-new Part 2 is available now. You won't want to miss this thrilling next chapter only from Audible. Visit audible.com donor to learn more and sign up for your free trial. We've heard from some of the families who had babies using sperm from donor 9623. So much of what they'd been told about him wasn't true. The spotless bill of health, the advanced degrees. How was this guy able to get through the system, to conceive so many children, based on all those lies about who he was and what he'd done? understand what went wrong at Zytex with donor 9623, it helps to have some context about the sperm banking industry in general. I've mentioned it's a multi-billion dollar industry that's largely unregulated, but we haven't talked much about the culture of this industry. It was a shady business from jump. This is journalist and author David Plotz. It was always involved somebody like not kind of fully telling the truth, not being upfront with a woman. For most of the 20th century, Plot says, sperm donation wasn't an industry so much as a procedure that happened at a doctor's office. Clients, or patients, were almost always straight couples seeking help for infertility at a time when the inability to conceive was seen as a profound failure, sexual, marital, and personal. It was all furtive and it was shameful because there was often a pretense that the father was the biological father. And the doctors, because they, were, they had full cover, did really cruddy, bad things like just using their own sperm and fathering hundreds of children themselves that way. Then the AIDS crisis hit. And testing couldn't detect the virus in sperm right away, sometimes for months. That meant donor sperm had to be frozen so it could be retested later on. This process is called cryopreservation. It involves mixing the sperm in a glycerol solution and cooling it in liquid nitrogen down to minus 196 degrees centigrade. The new technology was too much for regular doctor's offices to take on. That's when new facilities began to spring up. Modern sperm banks. Since frozen sperm could be stored, you could bank it, sell it, and offer families a choice among the men it came from. At first, Sperm banks shared just the most basic information about these donors. Height, weight, race. That's it. And then in 1980, one sperm bank came along with a very peculiar vision. The Repository for Germinal Choice, also known as the Nobel Prize Sperm Bank. This particular sperm bank is the subject of Platz's book, The Genius Factory. It was a very early sperm bank that existed in Southern California, and the idea behind it was that it was going to take sperm from Nobel Prize winners and a cadre of brilliant children would be born who would help save the United States from the hordes of too many stupid people having children. Needless to say, 
The repository's mission creeped a lot of people out. In the end, only one laureate donated sperm, or at least admitted to having done so. Physicist William Shockley, who won his Nobel for inventing the transistor. The Nobel Prize Sperm Bank was a dud as a science experiment. It was a dud as a eugenics experiment, but it was a massive success as a marketing innovation. The repository shuttered in 1999, the year before donor 9623 walked into the doors of Zytex. But the failed experiment had a lasting effect on modern sperm banks because it took the shame out of the whole enterprise and brought this industry out into the open by giving would-be families more choice. They treat the customers like customers. They don't treat them like they're, they have a shameful secret. They validate them as they come to seek to have children. Sperm banking morphed into a commercial marketplace. What the repository did was create a catalog model with marketing in mind to appeal to the senses of the women who were the customers. And they loved it. Shockley, the Nobel winner who did contribute to the repository, he compared donor selection to picking flavors of ice cream. And every sperm bank in America since then has, has moved to that model, to the catalog model, to more and more information, to more and more salesmanship of these donors. It turned fertility from medicine into shopping. And as sperm banks evolved, their clientele expanded. The customer of the sperm bank has gone from being a married couple with an infertile man to being a single woman or a lesbian couple. Which Plot says changed the dynamic entirely because these mothers weren't hiding the fact that they'd used a sperm bank. So there was no need to limit their search for a donor to people who could pass as their husband. Now they could start thinking more broadly about all these other qualities they might hope to see in their children. So height being number one. There is this aphorism in the sperm bank business that you can't sell short sperm. Musical talent, athletic ability, high test scores are things that they really, they really dig for. I went through the process of becoming a donor to write this book. I didn't actually ultimately let them use my sperm, but I just went through the process just to see, and it's a very funny seduction. They're trying to pump you up make you feel like a real man. They're always telling you how great your sperm is compared to the average guy's sperm, and so that you, you, feel, you feel fired up about that. I just have an undergraduate degree. I had, no, I had no graduate degree. They kept hassling me and hassling me, like, are you going to grad school? Are you planning to go to grad school? Do you think ever one day you'll go to grad school? And, and I kept saying, no, I'm not going to grad school. I have no interest in grad school. The sperm bank wanted plots to be better educated because then it could make more money off his donations. The more degrees he had, the more appealing his sperm would be to potential customers. Sperm banks help people form families, but they're also businesses with sperm as their commodity. Customers pay a few hundred dollars for each vial, and many of these aspiring parents buy in bulk in case they don't get pregnant the first time or want to try for another kid. That's how it works in the U.S. anyway. In Canada, the U.K., Australia, much of Europe, it's illegal to pay men to donate. That's why Angie and so many others abroad buy donor sperm from American banks like Zytex. So the term donor here is misleading. Those who are selected get about $100 per deposit. 
they agree to come in at least once a week for a year. The Zytex website currently says donors can make $1,400 a month. That's $16,800 annually. But after that first 12 months, sperm banks typically keep them on payroll only for as long as their samples continue to sell, and donors don't age out. Zytex is one of the oldest and most reputable sperm banks in the world. The company ships thousands of vials a year to people in over 35 countries. At any given time, there are hundreds of donor profiles in their catalog to choose from. And 9623? The demand for his sperm was so great, Zytex paid him to come back repeatedly over a period of 13 years. All those impressive credentials in his profile, the PhD, Genius IQ, and sound mental health history, the company never confirmed whether any of that was true. We have all sorts of ways to check on things that are easy. That's Wendy Norman, who we heard from earlier. I mean, why not a Google check? I mean, an employer checks your Facebook. They do all of that. It's not illegal. It's not immoral. It's not anything. Why wouldn't you do that? Did you ever think to ask, to confirm? No. You just assumed that... They're checking. You think that the sperm bank should ask for those medical records or shouldn't allow people to be donors if they don't share them? I think when you do a thorough background check, you should know what medications they're on and why. It never crossed your mind that they might not check or that the donor might not tell the truth. You assumed that it was all truthful and verified. Well, and when they say they have a degree that's so easily checkable by the, they have the name, they have the information, why wouldn't you say, oh, yep, you do have a degree? It's not expensive or high technology to show an ID card or a diploma. I mean, anybody could walk in and say, yeah, I have a doctorate, you know? Michael Tucker, the former Zytec CEO I talked to, he had given me the impression that donor vetting amounted to a basic physical and an interview that could supposedly weed out any creeps or liars. If anyone at Zytex had actually fact-checked 9623's claims about his health or education or criminal record, the truth wouldn't have been hard to find. Starting with nothing more than Chris's email address, Angie and the other moms had pieced everything together with a few hours searching online and a phone call to his school. The University of Georgia told them he couldn't have been getting his Ph.D. because he dropped out of college his freshman year, 1996. That was four years before he started selling his sperm to Zytex in 2000. 2005, at age 29, is when he pleaded guilty to burglary. These court records were public. So were arrests for drunk driving and trespassing and disorderly conduct. Those documents also detailed a history of struggles with mental illness, including repeated hospitalizations. A licensed clinical psychologist who examined Chris six times between 2004 and 2005 reported, quote, The client describes himself as having fits of rage. The records say he had over 100 mood swings per week, starting when he was 16. It goes on. Client's psychotic-like features include prominent auditory hallucinations starting 20 years ago. The report also mentions that bipolar phenomena began as early as age 13. Remember the comment he left in response to a YouTube video? The one I'd asked Angie to read? He says, I have schizophrenia. 
He posted this under his own name. It would have come up on the first page of search results had Zytex ever Googled its star donor. I wanted to ask Zytex whether they'd ever tried looking up his name online, but each time I reached out, I got the same response. No comment. Don't contact us again. There doesn't seem to be anything unusual about how Zytex vetted donor 9623 in particular. He underwent a basic physical, blood test, and interview. He wasn't asked to provide medical records, nor did it appear the company had run any criminal history or called the school he claimed to have graduated from. Zytex sold Chris's sperm samples for a decade and a half. Over that whole span, did the company never run even the most basic background check on him? When the truth surfaced, the case of donor 9623 made headlines. But was it unique? How would you know if this was a one-off case? I'm sure it probably happened more often than we realized. Do I think it happened a whole lot? No. Maybe. But it was hardly a fluke either. In January 2017, dozens of families got together and filed a petition to the FDA asking them to regulate American sperm banks. Some of these parents shared their own stories about donors who'd lied about their degrees and didn't disclose serious health problems they'd passed on to their kids. In September 2019, the Washington Post published an expose about an autism cluster involving at least a dozen children, all conceived with sperm from the same donor. His profile never mentioned the cognitive disabilities that the sperm bank would have caught if it had gotten his medical records. I don't think it's an accident that this rudimentary screening process didn't work. There's an incentive problem here. Sperm banks want donors to sound as impressive as possible. They're selling a product. A donor's talents and accomplishments are what make his sperm more valuable. It's not just about selling a greater number of vials. Some banks actually charge more for sperm from highly credentialed donors. Even Tucker pointed this out. This is a a, a bit of a a difficult way to couch things, but the more attractive potentially a donor is, if you want them to keep uh, producing samples, you may need to pay them more. When Chris Agalis walked through the doors of Zytex in 2000, he may have seen one of the company's ads from around that time targeting college students. These ads promised, quote, an easy anonymous way to make some serious money, up to $1,800 a month, so you can say goodbye to ramen and hello to steak. Again, Michael Tucker, the former Zytex CEO. If only the best donors are accepted in the first place and paid more if they're chosen more frequently, it seems almost like they're incentivized to exaggerate their own qualities. Do you think the screeners are under some pressure to inflate? I can't speak to that fully, and I can see that there's a potential for that, or almost like self-disillusionment. You know, but that level of commercial opportunism, no. And I know there's a lot of anger out there, which tends to view our industry as rapacious commercial entities who are just out to, uh, you know, 
smoke and mirrors, just do whatever we can to make a fast buck, and is definitely not the case. The vast majority of all the people I work with focus on patient care. As the former CEO of Zytex, do you feel like you bear some responsibility? Oh, I feel like I bear responsibility for the whole industry, not just for Zytex. But I also put that into context of the time, the historic growth. You're talking about a useful medical area of medical practice. So when the parents, you know, flipped through the pages of the, the, the Zytex catalog and they selected donor 9623 in consultation with the screeners, you don't think that Zytex owed them more than relying on his misrepresentations about his health and education. Do I think they owed the recipient of the donor sperm more at that time and place? I think they provided a level of service which was industry standard. So I I can't fully blame them. Do I think they could have done a better job in weeding out this individual? Perhaps. But, you know, what if, what you know, <laughs> coulda, shoulda, woulda sort of approach to these issues, it's a, a good lesson learned. But had Zytex learned a lesson? As I've said, I wasn't able to speak with anyone currently working there, but I did talk to Dr. Al Yusby, who served on Zytex's medical advisory board since the 90s. So as far as you know, Zytex didn't bring this up with you or with any other board members or at any meetings? No, nothing, not to me directly. Yusby said that Zytex's medical advisory board met by phone a couple times a year. So there was never a phone call or a meeting of the advisory board that ever raised the case of donor 9623 specifically or the larger? Not a call that I was involved in. As for Dr. Tucker, he seemed to think that the company had done the best that was reasonable to expect at that time. Uh, And I can only say sorry and um, say that, you know, um, I, I hope all is well into the future. Making babies is still a roll of the dice, he told me. You can see the attractive guy at the end of the bar and get knocked up, and what you get is, you know, perhaps a whole lot different than what you expect. That was a little crude, to put it like that. But you do understand, you know, uh, that's the nature of this business. I get Tucker's point. Making a baby is a crapshoot, however you do it. But it also reminded me of something I'd heard from another mom, Linda who had a daughter using sperm from donor 9623. I could have went to a bar and just done what some people do, right? But no, I <laughs> I wanted to be um, responsible. And I always felt that if I have a child, I, I want her to know her background. You go to a sperm bank to mitigate risk and reduce the randomness of the bar scenario. That's the whole point. It's what you're paying for. If you're in a relationship, I mean, if you don't ask those questions, shame on you. If you're purchasing something and it was documented that you're getting this, and it turns out half of it is wrong, and it's not only just, oh, his eyes aren't blue. 
It's like, my gosh, it's genetic conditions that I may have passed on to my child. And that's shame on them. Over and over again in their marketing materials, sperm banks are saying, trust us. Angie, Wendy, Linda, and scores of others who chose donor 9623, they did. Now these families were coming to terms with some of the very dangers they had hoped to avoid by using a sperm bank in the first place. This was like, to me, it was like failure. What do you mean? It just seemed like I took this giant step in doing something that nobody's done. And now I I did it wrong. Sorry. I shared my journey with my family and even my friends, right? Because they knew that I was single. And they knew the process that I went through to choose 9623. And now I wish, really, that I had kept it to myself. Like, today, my family know... Because, but at that time, when it all came out, I didn't share it with anybody. I was ashamed to. I don't want to say that I felt like I, like I failed her, but it's like I should have been a little bit more careful, I guess. I just put a lot of trust in a, in a company that I shouldn't have. What's it reasonable for parents who go to a sperm bank to expect? Honesty. That's what I was expecting. Honesty. Let it be my choice. I'm the one who's going to be raising that child. You don't expect perfection, but oh my God, I mean, you expect honesty. Like you're dealing with creating a a person, a life. Like, where's the decency in... Who does he think he is and and Zytec? Who do they think they are? Mad's a strong word for me. I don't get mad a lot. I am... I just... It hurts to know that people would do that. It shatters how I look at the world. Because all Alex and I have wanted was for Zytec to release the names and tell the people, I mean, what we've been through, they may just be looking at and have no idea. And there are simple things that can be done. Even if the biggest fear comes true and he has schizophrenia, early detection and early medication makes a whole world of difference. There are so many people out there that don't know. If they wanted to hold the sperm bank accountable and bring about industry-wide change, they'd have to take action. That's next on Donor 9623. For more explosive investigations like Donor 9623, listen to The Debutante from journalist John Ronson. 
In his latest Audible original, Ronson untangles the mystery of Carol Howe, a charismatic debutante who disappeared from the world, but not before she found herself amidst one of the most terrible crimes ever to take place in America. Part conspiracy theory, part mystery. Visit audible.com slash debutante. That's audible.com slash D-E-B-U-T-A-N-T-E and sign up for your free trial.